This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. One of the most talked about true crime documentaries in the early 2000s was a multi-part series titled The Staircase. The series followed the trial of Michael Peterson, who was charged with murdering his wife, Kathleen, whom he said had died after falling down the stairs in their North Carolina home. Investigators quickly surmised that the 48-year-old technology executive had died not from a tragic slip and fall accident, but had been bludgeoned to death by her husband. The series provided an intimate portrait of a complex murder mystery and a look into how the lengthy investigation and trial affected Peterson, his family, and the family and friends of Kathleen. Because the investigation was plagued with problems from the start, the trial and subsequent conviction of Michael Peterson was hotly debated, with some believing him to be a cold-blooded killer and others thinking he'd been railroaded by a biased justice department. Later, an alternate theory was presented, one that many found bizarre and perhaps absurd. But a new book titled Death by Talons makes a very detailed, researched, and compelling case for this theory. Namely, that Kathleen Peterson was not murdered, nor the tragic victim of a common household accident, but rather that her death was a direct result of an owl attack. Today, I'm joined by the author of Death by Talons, Dr. Titi Smith. I hope you'll listen to this fascinating discussion, which may have you revisiting your own beliefs about The Staircase. There are a handful of true crime cases that have occurred in our lifetime that have become so infamous that you can probably remember them just by the details or just by hearing their names. The Columbine mass shooting, the Jomine Ramsey case, the Menendez brothers murders, those come to mind along with many others. I'm sure you can think of off the top of your head. The case my guest has joined me today to discuss is one that's probably familiar to many of you. It is generally known by most people as the staircase murder. So that probably gives you your first hint. However, the guilt or innocence of the accused is still hotly debated even two decades later. I'll just give a very brief summary of this case as we kick off the episode. By no means will it cover all the ins and outs. This is a very intricate case, but hopefully this will refresh your memory. On December 9th, 2001, 48-year-old Kathleen Peterson was found dead at the bottom of a staircase in the North Carolina home she shared with her husband, Michael Peterson. Investigators would conclude that it was not a slip and fall accident that had killed Kathleen, but that her death was the result of homicide. Her husband was charged with her murder, and after a lengthy trial that was chronicled in the very popular documentary series titled The Staircase, Peterson was found guilty. The blood spatter evidence that in large part was the backbone of the prosecution's case against Peterson was later called into question and he was granted a new trial. While Michael Peterson has always maintained his innocence, he and his attorneys decided to enter an Alford plea to a reduced charge of manslaughter. Peterson was then sentenced to time served and released from prison in 2017. But the story has had many twists and turns, including an alternate theory that was first presented to the public, I believe in about 2008. This alternate theory, which some believe is 
quote, the smoking gun, and others have dismissed out of hand, is known as the owl theory. My guest today is Titi Smith. He is a doctor of philosophy and has taught at universities in New Zealand and Indonesia. He has also authored books on the relationship between science and religion, the philosophy of religion, among other weighty subjects. And he is also the author of a new true crime book about the Peterson case titled Death by Talons, which we will talk about the owl theory in detail in this book. Welcome. And I'm wondering, should I call you Dr. Smith or should I call you Titty? Because I feel like I, feel like I should call uh, you Dr. Smith. <laughs> well, I think if you call me Dr. Smith, I might have some lost in space flashbacks and I might That's start exactly. saying, it, it, it's just the worst surname to have a doctor <laughs> alongside. So let's just go with Titty, I think. Okay, it's good to yeah. It's so funny because that's the first thing I thought of too. Like, oh yeah, wasn't Doctor Smith in that show? Yeah, the, wow. the yeah. very camp doctor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> first of all, I have to say, I think my listeners, like myself, are very curious, or will be very curious once they hear that resume, about how a doctor of philosophy ends up writing a book about an infamous true crime case. So I want to ask you if you can walk us through first. What inspired you, I guess, first of all, to learn so much about this case and then want to write about it, research it and write about it, right? But I guess I should start with this first. How did you first learn about this case? Oh, well, I first saw the Staircase docuseries. So this was by um, Jean-Xavier de Lestrade back and was released in 2004, Um and I, I had seen it only shortly after its release, sometime around 2006, something like that. Um, and I was, you know, very engrossed in the tale. It's a very interesting documentary to watch. Um, you get pulled in emotionally because of the stories and the interviews and the twists and turns in the tale. Um, and, you know, at the time, I, you know, didn't really think much more about it other than that, uh, well, it was an interesting um, little documentary, but, you know, all things said and done, Michael probably killed his wife. I mean, the mm -hmm. blood spatter seemed too extensive throughout the house. The wounds to her head were too serious. And the idea that Kathleen may have simply slipped at the base of a set of stairs and inflicted this much damage to herself just seemed utterly implausible. So, you know, that was really where I stood. I was, I was pretty much on team guilt. Uh, but it was actually, so you said at the beginning of the... Um, uh, interviewed that it was around 2008 when the owl theory came into uh, public knowledge. It was actually in 2003, just after oh, wow. the trial, just after the trial had finished. In fact, it was um, about three months after the trial had finished that the media got wind of a new theory put forward by Michael Peterson's neighbour. And that theory, which I also heard about just shortly after watching the docuseries, so that, again, about 2006 or so, um, was that, in fact, it was neither a fall nor a murder. What had happened was that Kathleen had been attacked by an owl. Of all things, an owl had come along, swooped at Kathleen's head, inflicted these terrible gashes onto the back of her head before she ran inside the house and collapsed at the foot of the stairwell. So the idea is that all of Kathleen's attack had really occurred outside before she ran inside and fell. Now, you know, when I heard that theory in 2006, that, I started to get a bit more interested in the case again. I thought, well, now here was another twist and turn to this already twisty-turny story. Um, and I thought, well, that, you know, that sounds a bit crazy, really. We, Who ever heard of a killer owl? 
But then the more I looked at the evidence, the more I saw why this neighbor had put forward this theory and what reasons he had to support it. It wasn't sort of like a dream or an idea he had just clutched out of thin air. He really um, had to go through some um, serious deliberation about the evidence and what it best supported in this case. And that's how he came up with this theory about an owl. So anyway, um, that's how, so, so when I, after I first watched the docuseries in 2006, it was shortly afterwards that I heard about the owl theory. And that's when I sort of had all three theories on the table. Around about 2006, I knew about the owl theory, the murder theory, and the fall theory. And I was still pretty agnostic about which of these three might have happened. Most people that watched the documentary, The Staircase, like you said, was first released in 2004. Most who viewed it fell in one of two camps, right? Either A, that Kathleen's death was a tragic accident, or two, that she was murdered. And that was it. That Those were the two things that, that you could point to. And there were problems with both theories, right? I mean, as far as the crime scene evidence, both had problems. And there was, there was something about that that I think that's what was so intriguing about this, the documentary and why it became one of these water cooler shows people talked about because they're like, well, wait a minute though. If she was murdered, it doesn't seem right. There's, there's something here that that's off about it. Um, you know, where it happened, how it happened, but it was a slip and fall case. There's just way too much trauma there. There's way too much blood evidence in different places and all of this. Yeah. And I think one of the ways around it, of course, you know, what we've, get from looking at a lot of different crime scenes um, is contamination, you know, that things weren't preserved correctly. You could always look at these, these details and, and either excuse them away or maybe make some kind of decision about maybe why that looked that way. But it just still wasn't nailed down, right? And I don't know exactly when I did hear about the owl theory because I know that I heard about it at some point, but I can't remember exactly when it was. So was the owl theory in the original release of the documentary or or was that later on or do you know because i i can't quite recall no you're quite right so it was originally released um without any mention of the owl theory um when it was re-released on netflix only recently with those extra episodes um that sort of discussed a little bit about the alfred plea that michael took and after the staircase um, it's in those later episodes after the fact that Larry receives a short interview. Larry Pollard was the neighbor who put forward this theory, and he is granted a few minutes to present his theory at the end of the uh, re-release on Netflix. But again, it's um, you know, that's great that it got some media, and it's great that Larry's theory received a little bit more attention. Um, but it's simply not enough, <laughs> and actually. Yeah. Although there's a lot of discussion out there in the media wilds about the owl theory and about, um, you know, how crazy it is and how implausible it is, there's not a lot of discussion or, in fact, media focus on the theory itself and what evidence is there to support it. And that's why I felt it was important to write this book, because originally I started to wonder, you know, what well, this owl theory was very interesting. I bet there must be a lot more evidence involved than even I know about. I wonder where I can get a book about this. <laughs> so I started yeah. looking for where to get the book about the owl theory. And then I found, oh, there is no book about the owl theory. Good grief. That's a surprise. Uh -huh. I'll have See, to write you the fell, damn thing. You fell, into, you fell into the trap 
of the of yeah. the true crime writer. It's like there's got to be a book about this, and then yeah. there's not, and then you have to go write it. <laughs> well, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, there's so many so many angles that you can take on this. There's not simply the the evidential angle of you know, well, what a crazy theory. What evidence is there to support this crazy theory? But there's also just the story of this poor man, Larry Pollard. Mm-hmm facing yeah. abject ridicule for about a decade or so as he tries oh gosh, with all of his might. Oh, absolutely. You know, and then eventually, after all that hard work, after all that ridicule, after a life torn to shreds, you know, his marriage destroyed by the, the just the, the constant ridicule, at the end of it all, Michael Peterson says, oh, right, look, I'll just take this Alfred plea and we'll be done with it because oh, I want gosh. out of prison. Yeah. You know, and Larry yeah. is been collecting evidence for years and years he's interviewed all these ornithologists he's had all these expert opinions for nothing you know for absolutely nothing most people don't know that part of the story and and you do go into detail about how he had this information and was trying to get it to the attorneys or to the defense attorneys and that i think the case was the trial was just about to wrap up or something so he's trying to get all of this to them and spending all this time doing this research So David Rudolph was the lead uh, defense attorney. What was his response when he heard about this theory about maybe it had been an owl that had attacked Kathleen Peterson? What was his first response to that? Do you know? Well, I mean, I have a secondhand account. I'd like to talk about maybe Thomas Mayer, who was the second attorney to David Rudolph on the defense, um, because he actually went to the media after the owl theory went public and said explicitly, this is not a defense theory, we had no part in it, and we're not going to be pursuing it. Now, when Rudolph, this is according to Larry at least, when Rudolph was told about this theory by Larry in the sort of closing days of the trial, Rudolph sort of, you know, raised an eyebrow and said, well, well, I'm a bit busy here, mate, there's closing arguments coming up, and, and what are you telling me? You want to argue that an owl killed Kathleen? Yeah, um... Yeah, I don't think we're going to go there right now. And in any case, it seems as though Rudolph knew that the best way forward for Michael was to focus on these more specific procedural problems that had infected the first trial, which were quite apparently there to anyone watching the trial. You know, there are all sorts of legal issues and legal problems with the case as it was presented uh, that would be good grounds for a retrial. So, I mean, it was right. pretty sensible by Rudolph to say, look, we're not going to go owl. We're going to go diva, bad, blood spatter analysis or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that worked. You know, the fact of the matter is there were two motions for appropriate relief put forward uh, in Michael's case, or three rather. Um, and the uh, one of them was Larry's, which, um, you know, mentioned the new evidence in favor of this owl theory that was shot down. And it was only Rudolph's subsequent motion for appropriate relief that um, pointed at Dwayne Deaver's atrocious blood spatter analysis and said, well, you know, this is so shoddy, we need a retrial. And that's what did it. So, I mean, you can't fault him for not listening. Reading the book, I find out other things about this, right? What was it that you can remember that you heard about this theory that made you think, well, wait a minute. Now, mm. this is something. This this is something to really pay attention to what what part of it or were there certain aspects of this theory that you thought kind of answered some questions that maybe hadn't yet been answered 
um, mm. in this case. Well, okay, maybe maybe we just should present what the problems are for the two theories and what how the L theory solves these problems. Now, uh, there's that old sort of Sherlock Holmes thing, you know, once you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. The trouble with the two uh, defense and prosecution arguments that were presented at trial was that, well, they both seem to be impossible, right? So we were left without any explanation at all. Um, the trouble with the defense argument is there's way too much blood all around the house. And importantly, there's even blood outside the house on the front path, right? Drops of blood on the front path. It doesn't make any sense why a woman falling down the stairs should scatter blood all over the front path of her house. Now, the problem with the murder theory was that Kathleen had no bruising to her brain and had no fractures to her skull, even though she had these great big lacerations in her head that were strangely trident shaped. And um, they were very strange symmetrical shapes on her head. So ultimately, Kathleen just bled to death from these deep cuts on her head, which doesn't really sound like a homicide where somebody's being struck over the head with a blunt object. Now, Larry's theory was able to account for both of these pieces of evidence at once, because his theory goes, the blood outside the house is from the point at which she was first struck. Right? She was outside the house, an owl swoops down, kapow, blood falls on the front path. That's how you explain the blood outside the house. And the fact that there's no damage to Kathleen's skull and no bruising to her brain, only these deep lacerations that are shaped exactly like what Larry called turkey tracks, is perfectly well explained by a bird of prey attacking her. Now, that was the evidence that Larry started with that really made him think, hell, there's something going on here. And it was after this that Larry discovered that evidence had been withheld in this case. Um, and that evidence was two microscopic feather fragments that had been discovered by the SBI trace evidence team um, in one of the hairs that Kathleen had pulled out from her own head. So it deserves to be said that when Kathleen was discovered at the foot of the stairwell, she had over 60 strands of hair uh, clumped in her bloody hands. And on one of these hairs, uh, microscopic feather fragments had been discovered. Now that's all very interesting, and it's all very good evidence for the owl theory, but when I was looking at this evidence, I sort of had this thought one day, which was, well, you know, if you think of a cat with a bird, um, there's usually a few more feathers around than just a couple of microscopic fragments on one bloody hair in someone's hand, right? If there's any sort of tussle between this large bird of prey and a fully grown woman, uh, there should be more evidence of an owl's presence. Even like the miraculous discovery of these microscopic feathers that, you know, Larry had predicted by the power of sheer deduction, it's simply not enough. So even though there's good evidence for the theory, there's actually still, it seems, on Larry's account, not enough evidence. And that's when I started to look more deeply at this case. Yeah, you're right, because I, I uh, well, my studio is up here. I live in um, in San Jose, I'm in the East Foothills. And, uh, oh, San Jose. Uh, you, you, there was a yeah. great story about an owl attack in San Jose in the book. But <laughs> yes, I was going to mention that. So this is going to be my first pitch for you guys to get the book, because it, it's got so much detail in there. First of all, the, the photos, like I said, I'd never seen those photos before. But it's pretty evident that that was a weird, weird wound on her head. And here's the thing we know. Anybody's watched The Staircase, The Blowpoke. Mm. We heard blow poke 50 million times in that documentary. 
<laughs> and it's like that thing is so long and thin and it, you know it's just one long uh, metal rod that's not even very heavy how does that do that kind of damage because they had to find something that was narrow enough that would maybe make those if she was hit multiple times over the head maybe make those kinds of of uh, wounds but then when you look at the the photos in the book um, then, you know, you're like, well, wait a minute, come on. Somebody didn't think this is weird. We got to figure out what this is. That to me was the first kind of mind blowing thing. And, and the other thing is, yeah, in the book, again, you guys have to get the book. The only way you're going to get this information is to, you learn about these horrendous owl attacks all over the place, all over the country, all over the world, basically, that I had never heard about even one here in my city of of, of San Jose, how did the research account for like, why wasn't there more or was there more evidence of owl feathers once you started looking at these, I guess it was the photos he really kind of looked at with the microscope to see what was going on in these photos? Yeah, I mean, there, there are strange contradictions between photos um, that are taken of the same areas in the house. These were famously set out in the documentary, they were called photo glitches. Uh, there was quite a famous uh, episode where Rudolph sort of incredulously is interviewing this this forensic officer who explains them away as photo glitches. But there are there you know there are just so many issues with the crime scene video and the crime scene photographs. The quality of them generally is really quite appalling, and you need to wonder well, why did this trained forensic team have such trouble taking you know, a simple colour photograph of a... Even on the stand, you know, you have officers who are being interviewed, uh, asked about, you know, what does this photo depict? What does that photo depict? And they're apologising while they're answering the question, saying, look, I, I don't know, I'm really sorry, I don't know why that photograph is so discoloured, but but we didn't fight, we, we, <laughs> we didn't do anything to them. Um, you know, the, the crime scene video as well, has all say sorts the of pretty crappy the, too. <laughs> the, well, the video is not just crappy; it kind of it violates some principles of crime scene videography. Um, when you make a crime scene video, you're not supposed to make any scene cuts, and the reason for that is pretty obvious because you don't want the defense coming out later and saying, well, "What did you edit out of there? You know, what, what's missing? What have you taken out?" So, any cuts in a video should normally be noted, and you should note the reason for the cut having happened, and so on. But this didn't happen in this case. In fact, shockingly, the crime scene video has over 21 scene cuts in about 12 minutes of footage. So nearly one every 30 seconds. Um, hmm. Some of the cuts are really quite suspicious as well. So in other words, you might have, say, a close-up of a doorbell. And then there's a cut. And when the scene returns, it's still a close-up of the doorbell. So it's as though the camera's just been switched off and then switched on again, if that's what happened, right? Either that or something's been removed from the middle portion. But anyway, I mean, the, the real issue is, you know, why was the scene documented in such a shoddy way? And I think that there's an explanation to this. Um, in the book, I present, you know, a lot of evidence, I think, to show that evidence of an owl's or a bird's um, existence in and around the house was hidden from view and it was hidden from view by a very calculated use of poor quality film and poor quality photographs and you can actually um, 
like I say, you can see these photographs in the book and you can go through and look at the evidence for yourself. Some, some evidence simply disappeared mid-trial as well. And that was a problem. So not only right. was evidence um, presented in a way that was hard to make out what it was, other evidence was simply mislabeled or, in fact, um, you know, it vanished mid-trial or it was done away with, thrown away, hidden. The documentary, of course, is edited quite a lot in, even if it is a multiple hour documentary, we're seeing things presented the way that the filmmakers decided to put it together and, and they couldn't put everything in. So there's quite a bit that was left mm. out. You know, this is what we see in some of these cases that tend to be manipulated because they decide on a suspect or think this is the most likely suspect. And then you start looking for things or maybe not even consciously, but you're, you're actually looking for things that fit what you already believe. Um, yeah. And so that, that's, that's possible as well. But then of course there is the other, the other idea is, was this deliberate? We know that Michael Peterson had problems with the authorities in that town for a long time. And uh, of course people can watch that or, or there's some of it in the book too about what was going on in that town and why Michael Peterson wasn't the most popular person as far as the police and uh, other people uh, of authority were considered. So that's another possibility. But you talked about the Sherlock Holmes thing and that that's one way to look at it, which mm. makes sense. But because you are a doctor of philosophy, I have to ask this question. <laughs> Occam's razor, you know, mm. this is something even people that are don't know, you know, squat about philosophy, have heard mm. before, but Occam's razor basically very, very boiled down very simply is if you have two competing ideas to explain the same situation or phenomenon that you should prefer the simpler one because it usually is right. And I was wondering about that. So if you look at what it would take to explain this crime scene and this crime, or if it is a crime, which would be simpler? Would it mm. be... Number one, a fall down the stairs. Would it be an attack by a person known to her, like Michael Peterson? Or would it be an attack by an owl that resulted in a fall down the stairs? See what I'm saying? That, See what I'm going No, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, no, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get too technical, and but this is such a philosopher's reply, I realize. <laughs> but I'm going to say, um, it all hinges on what you mean by simple. <laughs> yeah. Because... <laughs> see the issue, yeah, that the is issue the uh, no I know so annoying yeah you're already having flashbacks <laughs> to university um but no I mean you know by simple you might mean well which theory is just has is most likely you know which theory mm -hmm. when I say simple I mean like easy to believe or something like that like you know simple easy common sense um and if you're looking for that well then you know you'll probably say a fall did it Right? Because that's the theory with the highest prior probability of all of these three theories. It's much more likely to for one to die from a fall in the stairs, you know, of your own house than it is to be murdered by your significant other, and certainly much more likely than to be attacked by an owl, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. But the, the real question is what is the evidence that we're trying to explain and how are we trying to explain it? So again, this is like that other rendition of Occam's razor where you say, um, if you hear hoof. Uh, beats think uh, horses, not zebras. Um, so, you know, 
let's take for example the fact that Kathleen had three puncture marks on each of her elbows arranged like the points of equilateral triangles right so each of her elbows one two three one two three um very similar in their dimensions very similarly spaced okay that's just one piece of evidence and then we can apply something like an Occam's razor you know um approach and say well What's the simplest thing to explain this? Well, what on the staircase is going to do this if she fell? Nothing. So that's a very... If you want to say the stairs did three little puncture marks on each elbow, you know, you're, you're saying, well, somehow she landed six times and they just punctured. You know, it's a very complicated explanation. You have to invoke six events, and they're very mm -hmm. strange events. What about if it was a murder? How do you explain these three puncture marks on each of her elbows? Well, in that case, say, Michael must have uh, used the pointy bit of the blowpoke and gone one, two, three, four, five, six, like that on each of yeah. her elbows. Again, like a symmetrical pattern, uh, identical yeah. in each case. Now, again, you could say, well, that's more likely than the steer situation because the event, you know, is easier to make sense of and how it could produce these wounds. But again, now you still have to say there were six individual stabbing events, so we need to posit six events to explain these six wounds. And then you ask, well, what, how could an owl inflict these? And you think, well, if Kathleen was covering her head in a defensive fashion, she might have something was flying at her head, right, with both of her arms covering her forehead, her elbows presented forwards. Well, then it's just one lunge. It's one event. It's an owl jumping at her head. Now, that's, an, that's a way that you can look at it from a sort of Occam's razor approach, and you can say, well, you, in this case, with this particular piece of evidence, you only need one event, whereas on every other theory, you have to kind of come up with st strange scenarios, unlikely scenarios, and many of them. Right. That was the question that I remember having when they said they found her own hair grasped in her hands, like strands of her own hair. I'm like, who does that? Yeah, I've never heard of that in any no. other crime scene I've ever heard of. No. The way you explain it in the book is the way that the owls attack is they kind of swoop and then they grab, right, with the talons. So yeah. are you saying yeah. it was like we saw the, the wounds on top of the head, but also mm. the elbows yeah. because her her arms were above her head trying to like shield her herself where she maybe had already gotten hit. <laughs> Reading the book too is about how, how powerful a blow from one of these owls can be, which I, I found amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, even if we just talk about the grip force of the talons, you know, um, the grip force of a barred owl's talons is about equally as powerful as a pit bull's bite, right? If you, if you think about the talons of a larger owl, like the um, great horned owl, which is sort of the largest owl in North Carolina, you know, these talons have a, a grip force somewhere between six and ten times as powerful as your own clenched fist. So about six times as powerful as a man's grip. Um, you know, so take a, man, a, a relatively average man's grip, attach some needle-sharp talons to that, and plant that on somebody's head. You know, that's an incredible amount of force. And, of course, you know, if these um, talons are, are clenched into her scalp and she's pulling at the legs, you know, collecting some of her hairs as she does this it's not now we have another question which is um okay if she's collected all of these hairs from her head some of which we know have feathers on them 
Where are all the other feathers, right? Are they right. on the yeah? Still, where are the questions? Still, we're still asking right? the question. Yeah. Like it was incredible for, that Larry discovered these microscopic feather fragments, but where are all the bloody others? You know, like you can't you can't tussle with the bird without feathers flying everywhere. Um, and especially if she managed to rip out sixty of her own head hairs, she was doing a pretty useless job at fighting the cell. She didn't even get a single whole feather. Right. Yeah. Did more That's damage to question. herself than the owl. Okay, yep, sure. <laughs> That's the question. You guys read the book to you know figure out what, what they found. So that was it, ask you about your experience in writing this book. So how extensive was the research on, on, on your end? Um, did you end up following a lot of false trails before you came up with your own conclusions? Or was it pretty straightforward once you began with that premise that this that an owl could have caused Kathleen's injuries, you know, leading to her death. I think the research for this book was pretty straightforward. I certainly, it ended up going in a direction that I didn't predict and that I was extremely surprised by. The more I looked at the evidence, the more I realized that, you know, there's really something very, very strange has happened here. Um, so I when I started writing the book, I thought, well, you know, this book is going to be about Larry's owl theory. It's going to be about how he came up with the theory. It's going to be about the evidence that supports the theory. And slowly I realized, oh, his theory is not the whole story. Um, there has to be more to it because there's all this other evidence that nobody has actually mentioned. Um, so the more that I explored that evidence, the more I realized, well, you have to actually adjust Larry's theory now because... There, you know, there's a lot of evidence that he never mentioned. And I think I know why he didn't mention it. He just, you know, he got his theory and he ran with it. And like you said, like once that was in his head, he couldn't really see the, you know, any individual tree for the forest, as it were. You know, he was so focused on his theory, he couldn't make out the more general picture of what had happened. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I guess the way to put it is, I thought this book was going to be about the L theory. It ended up being a book about a cover-up. And that was a, a, a real shock to me because it wasn't supposed to be a book about that. <laughs> Not at all. Wow, yeah. um, right. And, uh, you know, and, that, and, and that's quite a, a scary thing to put out into the public as well, to publish a book that you say, well, look, I think there's been not just a miscarriage of justice here, but a deliberate miscarriage of justice, something that, you know, people were trying to hide things. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not sure we'll ever know why they're trying to hide things so badly. Where does this all stand now that Michael Peterson has been freed on um, on an Alfred plea? Is there anything anywhere that this can go now that you know with this information, or are there any next steps for it? So far as what I happened? understand it, I think the only um, process remaining is something like, say, the Innocence Project. You know, like um, uh, Michael Peterson, you know, get uh, try to seek some sort of formal acknowledgement of, uh, you know. But I, but I don't think that there's really any legal motions remaining. Um, everybody who was involved with that case and who had anything to do with the events of that night when Kathleen died, they just don't want to go back there. Um, nobody wants the old wounds reopened, and nobody really seems to want to talk about it either. So that was actually a real difficulty in investigating this case because there were only a few people who were willing to discuss it with me um you know larry pollard and i had some very lengthy uh conversations i talked to you know 
some of Michael's lawyers, some of um, you know the police on the scene. But uh, but other than that, it was extremely difficult to get into contact with anyone who was actually on the scene that night. And anybody who was on the scene that night really wants to stay totally mum on this. So you don't think there's any anybody that's out there who is now trying to say, who do we hold accountable? How do we maybe clean up the police department or, you know, whoever it is that's, that was involved, yeah. like you said, in the culprit? Is there anybody well, you think who's doing that kind of um, work or, or looking into well, that? Yeah, no, I don't think so. And I think there really does need to be something like a formal inquiry into this case because the um, the way that evidence was misrepresented and hidden um, is really bordering on what you'd want to call criminal. And, um, you know, there, there should be some sort of formal inquiry into uh, police actions and the actions of the, you know, judiciary, the uh, DA and so on. I mean, you know, this this kind of behaviour wasn't that uncommon in Durham around that time. You had, of course, the Duke lacrosse scandal that happened just a couple of years after Michael was in prison. And in this case, in fact, the DA was convicted um, for contempt of court. But even in this case, where there was a terrible, um, you know, uh, terrible injustice done to these three men, um, the district attorney sent, spent one day in prison. Um, mm. and was then released. You know, this was a district attorney who had gone to the media more than 50 times to say that these three black men had brutally gang-raped a black stripper and that he had exculpatory evidence of this fact that he didn't disclose to the um, defence. It was just an absolute travesty. Um, so, you know, this this was just a, a year or two after Michael was convicted. So it's... it's it, Durham wasn't really the cleanest of towns back then. I don't know what it's like now, and I don't know if there's any hope for cleaning it up at this point. It will come down to to the public, like it usually does. Um, mm. You know, and this this book maybe maybe you know maybe something that gets people a little bit fired up when they when they learn all about what went on, and uh, maybe looking at other things in other cases, and it may be the people that are local to that state or that area yeah. or even yeah, country that are that start. Maybe yeah. asking and hiring, just saying, hey, what's being done about this? I really hope so. I really hope so. These are important questions to ask. And it's not just the curiosity of it anymore. Mm. Um, there really is, is is maybe some justice that needs to be done here, or at least um, movement towards what should be yeah. justice in the future. And, so. and just if I can just add one more thing about this point, um, you know, it's not the fact that, say, I'm the only person who's presented evidence of, um, you know, a cover-up or of, of uh, some kind of conspiracy in this case. So David Rudolph pointed out that the notorious missing blowpoke, right, that had been the crux of the state's case, that had never been missing at all. It was photographed in 2002, before the trial started by Eric Campen and Dan George, the forensic team, right? They photographed it, they found it, they knew that it hadn't been involved in a murder, and they put it back in the house where they found it. So when yeah. they were sitting on the stand at trial, <laughs> saying, you know, oh, he, you know, the theory is he must have run out the door, you know, with this blowpoke dripping blood, they knew that hadn't happened. Um, and David Rudolph found this out, you know, and points to this fact during Michael's alpha plea. So it's not just me and my, you know, I'm not just some lone nutcase going, oh, there was a cover up. We know that they covered up some things. The question is just how much they covered up. And, um, 
you know, that that's when you start to look at it, I think you find there were many, many examples of this and not just, I mean, the blowpoke is, a, is an extremely obvious example um, mm -hmm. and really quite a dreadful one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The book is is really, there's so much to it. There's so many details. People that get the book, we'll be able to see the, the photos that you talked about. It's difficult to explain, so we didn't go into a lot of that because you really kind of have to see the photos um, in order to understand the detail. It really does tell a whole other story once you look it, at the photos. I'd like to add as well that because the photos, are, if you have it on Kindle or the paperback version, these will be black and white. You need to go to the Wild Blue Press website, so the publisher's website, where all of the color photographs are available. You can see, you know, in detail how, um, well, even just, you know, if you're interested, you can see how terrible some of the uh, crime scene photography was, you know, some of the overexposed yeah. photos. And I mean, they are so abysmal that you can't really, you, you know, they, you almost laugh when you see them. Yeah, you're like, who took these and how old are you? Who took this? Or was it drawn by a three-year-old? You can't tell yeah. what, you know. I'll put a link to the website because also there you can also order the book. But one more question, just one more question I had for you. So now that you've switched gears a little bit here and you, you've, you've done this whole investigation into this true crime, would you say that you've caught the sleuthing bug now? And are you thinking about now researching and writing about <laughs> any other kind of crime cases or anything like that? Yeah, look. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How long did this take? I didn't ask you that. How long did it yeah, take you? It took about two years all up. Yeah, two years of sort of obsessive, you know, 12 hour days. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, you say, have I caught the bug? I might have caught the bug and it, and it made me quite ill. And um, <laughs> and now I'm recuperating. Like, you're, you're in recovery. Of, I'm in recovery. But, you know, you know, it was very fun at the same time. It was it was um, exhilarating going down, you know, following the evidence where it led and realizing how drastically wrong all the available theories were in this case. I mean, it was just frightening. Yeah. It was no, it was it was actually frightening um, because I wondered what the hell I'd stepped into, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, but you know, do you know? I would love to. Uh, work on another case again one day but in the meantime i think it's time to just you know open a little a little bakery or something and then i'll get back into it <laughs> <laughs> well you know in all of those uh those little um mystery channels they always have you know the murder that happens at the bakery and then they have these funny oh, for them and then you've got these little cozy mysteries so you never know you could yeah. end up writing you know a little cozy mystery based well, on here's your bakery. one here's one thing i'll say though um so I live in Indonesia, which is a country that, you know, not many uh, foreigners know too much about. And there are some very, very interesting criminal cases here. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that your listeners would be interested in hearing some of the strange serial killers that have existed in this oh, country. Wow. Um, and there's one, in particular, in, <laughs> there's one in particular <laughs> that I've had my eye on. But there you go. Uh, there's a there's a journalist here <laughs> who I think would be much better at covering that story. But somebody I think needs to write that book. But yeah, but, you know, uh, well, that, you could always collab here. with a podcaster and do do both. You get you get the you get the story. You get it you, in the know, podcast. you might It'd be, be on great. There. That would be, <laughs> would be quite extraordinary. Awesome. So. Oh, you've done it now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. See now you, you can't get away from it. I just knew it. <sighs> 
So how can our listeners connect with you and or find your book? Social media, I'm a bit of a hermit. Uh, you'll be able to find me on Twitter. Um, I don't mind hanging out there. Um, Tiddy Smith, T-I-D-D-Y-S-M-I-T-H. Um, I've got, you know, a Facebook author page that, you know, I've just started, I've just opened in the last couple of days because um, apparently you have to. Um, yeah. Other than this, you know, get the book on Amazon, um, get, go to the Wild Blue Press uh, website and uh, have a look there. And, you know, another shout out for Wild Blue Press, really, if you are yourself writing something that you think might, um, you know, interest other true crime aficionados like us um well i would really recommend wild blue press they've been absolutely delightful to work with and um oh I've, i'm just so excited to be working with them quite honestly um and yeah. i like that on their on their website as well they'll they'll have extra um, information extra content like there was a link to to some of your writing and some of your interviews um yep. things like that absolutely yep. all kinds of rabbit holes <laughs> yeah i mean you know there's a, a common word that comes up with professional publishing is exploitation you know and like you couldn't be further from being exploited working with this team it's incredible definitely encourage you to uh get death by talons there's a lot in there i mean i was wait a minute Owl attacks. There's a whole chapter on owl attacks. <laughs> like I have to read this. Like that wow. Is, that I, I have to mind. say, if I'm most proud of anything in that book, it's that bloody chapter. Because that <laughs> chapter takes you on a wild ride through a hundred years of owl attacks in North America. <laughs> yeah, it really does. I actually read a few pages more than once. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, this is bizarre and insane. I'm afraid to go outside now. But thank you so much, Tini. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate you uh, dealing with us with the time zone and everything else. And uh, I will definitely uh, be recommending this to everyone I know. So thank you so I, much. I, re I really appreciate it, Esther. Thank you so much. I want to thank my guest, Tiddy Smith, for joining me. I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion, and I hope you did too. To get more information about his book, Death by Talons, you can go to Amazon or to the website wildbluepress.com. I've included a link directly to his author page on Wild Blue Press, as well as links to his social media channels. Next week, I'll be kicking off our new series, Love Triangles, in which I'll bring you three cases of romantic affairs that turn deadly. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and tell a friend about the podcast. You can get early release and ad-free episodes of Once Upon a Crime by joining us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to get all the information and join. Thank you so much. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My co-producer and audio editor is Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>